Well, hey, Mosaic, how are you guys doing? <laughs> it is good to see you guys and to be with you. And before we do anything else tonight, uh, could we just thank the Bay for letting us be here? It may not seem like a very big thing to open up your space to a church, but come on now, Christians can be really weird, and, and sometimes we don't always act like Jesus, and we can screw up a good thing, and so they took a risk on us letting us be here, and, and we're really grateful for that, uh, to be here tonight, so, so I, I, am, I really am genuinely excited to be with you. This is perhaps one of my favorite nights of the year in what is definitely... Uh, my favorite season of the year. And if you know anything about me, uh, I, we go nuts for Christmas at our house. And I don't know about your family, but, but we go all out. So we did the Christmas lights like back when it was 80 degrees, like pre-Thanksgiving. We were that family on the block outside, like hanging up our lights. Uh, you know, I just channel my inner Clark Griswold this time of year with no shame. And so, and we do the gingerbread houses and baking and almond bark. And, and this year, because we have no snow, we cut out paper snowflakes and just covered, like, the ceiling of our living room and hung them down. Um, we were missing the snow. And, and one of my favorite traditions that we do every year is all of our Christmas films, like, we put them away for the rest of the year. Like, I don't want Charlie Brown Christmas in July, you know what I mean? Like, and our kids will watch it, you know? So we hide them uh, all year long. But when Christmas season comes around, uh, we bust them all out. And so we have, like, almost every night of the week, we are watching Christmas films on repeat. So we've been watching Elf, you know, uh, Home Alone. We've been watching, because um, I do believe you need to disciple your kids in the way they should go. And so we watched Home Alone a few times, at least every Christmas season. Uh, we've watched uh, The Muppets Christmas Carol, which is one of my favorites from when I was a kid. The Santa Claus, The Polar Express. Um, this one, uh, you can judge me on this. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, yeah, 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 we, d- we bring that out for Halloween and Christmas, you know, it's kind of like a dual thing, uh, you can judge me, that's alright, we do that in our, fa- our house, and, and of course, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, and so this time of year, I watch, I watch a lot of movies, and so perhaps it's, it's not maybe a big surprise that this Christmas season, as I've been praying about tonight, and reflecting on Christmas, that it would be uh, a film that's really kind of pushing back and orienting my thinking uh, about this season, about this year. Um, and, you know, it's actually not a Christmas film. And, and I don't know about you, but every now and then, like, you watch a film and, and it just has an impact on you. You know, it just kind of, the characters or the story or both just kind of stick with you. And it, and it leaves a mark. Um, and, and a number of years back, I, I saw a film like this, and it's very an existential film, really. It's called Talladega Nights. And, uh, oh, some of you have seen it. Okay, so you'll know what, what I'm talking about. Um, so the, the film is about this race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And, and it, he's a NASCAR driver, it, it, well, played by Will Ferrell. He's kind of a redneck, not the sharpest tool in the shed. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's this one scene that from the first time I saw it, I died. I, just, I thought it was amazing. It's when they sit down to pray as a family. You remember this? So they, they, they sit down to pray, which is in and of itself is kind of amazing because that doesn't happen a lot in film. And, and Ricky Bobby prays. And, he, and amazingly, like, he doesn't just pray to a nameless God or like a sky fairy, higher power, you know, fill in the blank. He actually prays to God in the name of Jesus, which I thought was pretty interesting. And he actually calls him Lord, which I thought was very interesting. But where, where it gets funny is, is he insists on praying to the baby Jesus, you know? And so, 
And so for those of you, yeah, you'll appreciate this because you know it. So this is how his prayer starts, starts off. He's, he says, dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the South call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take some time to thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call him. And of course, my red hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone cold fox. And of course, uh, dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. And we hope you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. It smells terrible and the dogs are always bothering with it. Dear tiny infant Jesus. And he goes on and like his wife, you know, who's just a little bit sharper than he is, jumps in and she's like, look, he grew up. I, I think when you pray to Jesus... Like, you're supposed to pray to, like, the adult Jesus, you know? And he, <laughs> he pushes back and he says, no, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best. You know, when you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or, or whoever you want to. But for me, like, I like the Christmas Jesus best. I like the tiny, cuddly, right, golden fleece diapers, eight-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. So that's the Jesus I'm going to pray to. Now, now it's, of course, it's not an existential film. It's a ridiculous film, and, and it's a ridiculous scene. But, but I share this because I think it illustrates a tendency that all of us actually have. And, and I think this, this tendency uh, is pretty prolific this time of year, and, and it remains one of the biggest barriers to people actually coming to know the real Jesus and experiencing the life that he offers. And, and it's this. It's... It's a, I think for many of us, we tend to replace the real Jesus with the Jesus we want him to be. You know, and so for maybe for you, it is the Christmas Jesus. It's eight pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. Because baby Jesus in the manger makes you feel, I don't know, warm and safe. You know, he's cuddly. He's, he's beautiful. I like kids. He's certainly not threatening to me or my lifestyle laying in the manger there, right? Or maybe for, for you, it's, it's the help me, Jesus. Right, Jesus, I know we haven't talked in a long time, but I'm in trouble. Help me. Right, I know I, I probably won't talk to you until the next time I need some help, but, but help me, Jesus. Right, it's a pretty, pretty popular Jesus. You know, or, or maybe for you, it's, it's the part-time Jesus. Right? He's not always on the clock. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. He's a pretty convenient Jesus. Well, when I want him around, or when I'm feeling religious, or it's a holiday... Right, then I call on part-time Jesus. But when I don't want him, he's kind of off the clock and out of sight, out of mind. Or, or for some of us, I know this is true, for some of us, it's the storybook Jesus. You know, and the storybook Jesus, say, we, we treat Jesus in, in the Christmas story, it's just, it's just a story. Right? It's 2,000 years ago. It's myth. It's legend. It's something, maybe there was a Jesus that was born. I'm sure that's a historical fact. But the whole Messiah resurrection business. I mean, it's just legend. It's myth. Somebody created it, made it up in order to communicate a principle, you know? And so I can buy into some of those principles that I like and the rest of them I just kind of discard because it's, it's storybook Jesus. He's, he's not really real. And, and I think that, I think there's a little Ricky Bobby in all of us, all right? But the, but the Christmas story, the Christmas account, and we have, we have four of them, is that there, there actually was a real Jesus, and that real Jesus actually grew up, and he did a lot of things, and, and he said a lot of things, and he invited you and me into, into a certain kind of way that would change the face of the earth, right? And, and 
And so that's the Jesus that I want to look at tonight. Because what ends up happening, all right, when we just kind of gloss over and we adopt the Jesus we want, I think here's my biggest fear, is that we project onto heaven. We project onto Jesus and, and, and God most of the time ourselves. And we assume that God is, is like us. And so we project onto heaven like our biases, which I think sometimes we do this unintentionally even. Our ideas, our aspirations, and God ends up just being like a big version of us. And so that's why I think it's so incredibly important that we look at Jesus, because Jesus comes to us like we would never expect. Because if we were God, and we were entering into the human story, entering in the world with all the power in the universe at our fingertips, we never would have came in like Jesus did into the world. Never in a million years. But he does. Right? As Americans, if we, if we project unto God who we are, right, as some of the most some of us, not all of us, but generally speaking, we are some of the most powerful, wealthy, independent, educated people in the face of the earth. And the thing about Jesus is he was none of those things. And so maybe Jesus is very different from us. Maybe God is very different from us. And maybe that's really good news. Because he doesn't come to us like we would expect. He comes very differently. And, and here's what I want to suggest to you tonight, that the way that Jesus comes to us is suggests something very profound about God and, and about the way that we are invited into, the life that he invites us to live. And so we started by, by listening to Linus, right? Classic film. And he's reading out of Luke. And he's reading the Christmas account. And in the Gospels, we've got four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you go to the very first one, though, the very first words penned in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, before, there's, we find that there's actually something before the Christmas account. It's the lineage, it's the genealogy of Jesus. And so I want to read for you a, a passage that I, I think probably doesn't get much airplay on Christmas Eve nights. Um, it might be the most boring passage you will ever heard read on Christmas Eve night. All right, just to forewarn you. In fact, I bet... When you've, if you've ever picked up the New Testament to read in the book of Matthew, you probably skipped over this part. But in Jesus' genealogy, I want to suggest there, there's something there for us. If, if the Bible is the inspired word of God, there's something powerful and profound even in Jesus' genealogy. And I did some underlining just to kind of clue you in. So I'm, so I'm going I'm to read this for you out of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. Here we go. You're just going to have to bear with me, all right? So this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Hint, hint. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Hint, hint. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. Jerome, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. People are coming to Jesus. I can feel the energy in here, you guys. This is amazing. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, Jeconiah, the, the brothers um, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We're almost there. 
after the exile to Babylon. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Zor. See, I'll just mumble through that. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Should we close in prayer? Should we end there? So, so why, why take the time? Right, why, why take the time to read this? And why, why, why is this worth it? Why, why the, what's profound about this? To answer that question, you've got to understand something about ancient genealogies and its days. In ancient genealogies, whether they were secular or whether they were religious, right, the, the way that you did it, this was a man's world. Right, you didn't mention women. Right, you just didn't do it. It's not the way that it worked, right? It was Peyton, the father of Glenn, Glenn, the father of Greg, Greg, the father of Aaron, Aaron, the father of Jackson, right? You didn't mention Megan. You didn't mention Paige and Chloe. You just didn't do it. It was a man's world, right? It was a culture in which, you know, for, for women, uh, women were, were not able to vote, right? They could not witness in court. Uh, they were not typically educated. They could not work outside of the home, from a value system kind of level, like they were, they were kind of a step above cattle, right? Women were without power. It's just a culture. Women were without status, right? So you did not count women in a census and you did not mention them in genealogies. And in Jesus's genealogy, there's not one, but there are five women, five. All right. That, that, that is amazing. Right, that, that in the, the words of scripture, something that is so profound, this would have, all of the first readers of this, all the ancient readers would have been immediately clued in, like, this is not normal. Right, there's, there's something for us here that God would include women. Right, those without status, those without power, those who are often undervalued, mistreated, overlooked. God chooses to show them in Jesus' genealogy, which was not normal. Right, that's the first thing. But, but just as amazing that Jesus, that God chooses to include five women are the women that he chooses to include. All right, th- these, are, these are the five. These, these are the kind of women. This is, this is amazing. First of all, first woman, woman we, we meet in verse 3 is a girl by the name of Tamar. All right, now, now, if you are really familiar with the Old Testament, you may remember her as the woman who disguised herself as a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law for them to have relations and for her to have children that way, by seducing her father-in-law. All right, and that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. All right, so that's how she enters into the royal bloodline of the Messiah, by posing as a prostitute and seducing her father-in-law. And take note, God chooses her to be in Jesus' genealogy, right, to be recorded for eternity in the words of Scripture, to be read generation after generation after generation. And here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, reading her name. What is that about? Second woman that we meet is a, a gal named Rahab in verse 5. Rahab did not have to dress as a prostitute to pose as one because she was one. Right, she's, a, she's a prostitute and her life is spared when she hides away some spies. And her family's life is spared in the conquest of Jericho. And then somewhere along the way, she marries a guy by the name of Salmon, a Jewish guy, a powerful guy. I'd love to hear that story. It's not included for us, unfortunately. And in the process, she becomes King David's great-great-grandmother. 
Right? Amazing. Amazing. The third woman that we meet is a girl named Ruth in verse 5. And she too, just like Rahab, by the way, is a Gentile. Right? This would have been more offensive to ancient Jews than her being, Rahab being a, a prostitute. She was a Gentile. She was an outsider. Ruth is a Gentile. Ruth is an outsider. And not only is she a Gentile, she is a Moabite. All right? Moabites uh, had their ancestry, the origin of their family was incest. Right? That, that's where she came from. Her family was a result of an incestual relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. Right? She came from the Moabites who the Jews were forbidden from marrying. Right? Because they served polytheistic like, idols and gods. They practiced um, human sacrifice. And, and it's only through personal tragedy and loyalty that she ends up in Bethlehem and ends up marrying a guy named Boaz. And she's grafted in to God's family. And by the way, it's also worth mentioning, not only is she a part of Jesus' genealogy, but our Bible has a whole book with her name on it. Right? God is, listen to me, God is shouting something about his grace, even just through Jesus' genealogy. He is shouting something about his character. He is shouting something about this way that he invites us into. The fourth woman that we meet is Uriah's wife. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, she has a name, and her name is Bathsheba. If you're vaguely familiar with the Bible, you know Bathsheba, because her and David's dealings was, is the most scandalous story probably in the entire Bible. It's also one of the most devastating stories. And she is listed here as an ancestor of Jesus. And how does she become an ancestor of Jesus? Through sexual abuse. And the murder of her husband. Both, by the way, at the hands of Israel's greatest king. Those are the four. And then the fifth woman is Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. A peasant teenager with a common name who became pregnant out of wedlock, and the father is not her betrothed, Joseph. And that would be a reputation that would follow her for a very, very, very long time. Right, are you seeing a pattern? Right, this, this, should, this should blow our minds. This should amaze us. Right, ancient, ancient audiences would have looked at this, first of all, just the fact that five women are included, and they would say, what is going on here? That's not normal. It's like God taking a highlighter like blind, just a, shot, a spotlight is shining on it. And the kind of women that he chooses, even if women were included in genealogies, nobody would have chosen these five. And yet God chooses these five to be included in Jesus' genealogy. Right, these five women, not only, they have a few things in common. Not, not only do they not have any power, no status, right? culturally they're, they're, they're outsiders in so many different ways. But every single one of them has experienced disgrace. Either they committed it or they suffered it. They had tainted reputations. They experienced the contempt uh, of their peers. And they're the ones chosen by God, right, on the precursor of the the Christmas story to be included in the genealogy of Jesus, to be read generation after generation, after generation, right? I hear that, and there's a part of me that thinks, what are you up to, right? It's like, God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? If this, is, if, this is, if this is propaganda, 
just religious propaganda and none of it is real and the Bible is not the inspired word of God. This is the worst piece of propaganda like ever created, right? But if it's real and if it's true and if God actually wants us to see these things and read these things, right, to show us the kind of God that he is, right, to show, him his, to show us his character and his person and how to better worship him, then there's something for us here. And you know what? When we look at the person of Jesus, when we actually look at his birth and his life and we zoom out, then this actually shouldn't surprise us at all, right? Because this is Jesus, right, whose very genealogy shouts grace for the outsider, the prostitute, the liar, the greedy, the thief, the murderer, those with shady backgrounds, suspect reputations, families marked by the deepest brokenness. Yeah, that's the genealogy. But then this is also the Jesus who at his birth just carries on in much of the same, who at his birth, God invites mystics from the East to be present in the Magi, right? These are men who, who practice something that is expressly forbidden, is expressly forbidden in scripture, And then God leads them to the birth of Jesus on Christmas night through the very practice that he forbids. Like, what kind of God does that? You know, like, at what length is he willing to go to draw outsiders in? And and when you look at the Magi, they are outsiders in every sense of the word. And yet Jesus decides, or God decides that at Jesus' birth, they're going to be the ones that, that are coming to be present to meet him for the first time. Him and another company, right, the shepherds. Right, who announces the birth, and he invites into the intimacy of the operating room, if you will, shepherds. Right, shepherds were social outcasts. Right, they were deemed unclean by all the good religious people because they couldn't practice certain religious washings simply because of their vocation. They were considered ignorant because they did not have an education. They were rejected by culture. They were outsiders. And God invites them Right, this, he, Jesus is the man who later in life would continue in the same way that his genealogy foretold and his life began. Right, it shouldn't surprise us because this is the Jesus who when he grew older, he would commune with prostitutes and thieves and liars, swindlers. They would be his company for much of his life. Women of questionable character would fall at his feet and bathe them with his tears. And to the shock of everybody else, he would honor them and welcome them in the company of men. Right? And others would be brought to him, caught in the act of adultery, for him to, to dole out judgment. And God and Jesus would, would, would just extend grace. Should not surprise us. This is the Jesus who would go to lepers who were very, they were not just metaphorical outsiders or social outsiders. They were physical outsiders who lived in a makeshift refugee camp outside of the community. And he would go to them. This is the Jesus who, who embraced them. And in the moment he embraced them was deemed unclean by the religious community. The religious people deemed God in the flesh unclean. How often do we miss this, right? It shouldn't surprise us. This is, this is Jesus. The Jesus that came to us on Christmas. And in case you don't know, this is really good news to us, outsiders, Gentiles, all of us, outsiders, sinners, every single one of us. For all have fallen short of the glory of God, outsiders. And this God 
who's apparently really big on outsiders, comes to us on Christmas in the person of Jesus and makes a way for outsiders to become insiders, to become washed in grace, to become a part of the family. And this begins on on Christmas. This is the beginning of the story, but you have to know it doesn't end there. It's just the beginning. Because on Christmas, here's where sometimes we miss it. It On Christmas, Jesus came. And he did come to do something for you and me. This is the part that typically we Christians are really good at. Right? He came to do something for us, right? He came to, to bring us in, to, to cover us in grace, to redeem us, to make a way, to adopt us as sons and daughters into the family of God, yes. But on Christmas, God did not just come in the form of a little baby who would grow up. He didn't just do that to do something for us. Right? He also did it to do something in us so that he could go and do something through us. Right? And to celebrate Christmas and to ignore this is to miss the point. You see, God is still really big on outsiders. His heart still bleeds for him. Jesus bled for him. Right? The real Jesus is the one who inaugurated a kingdom where the line between outsider and insider would be blurred. And those who culturally we tend to push to the margins who are unworthy of love, who have no power, no wealth, no social status. In the kingdom of God, all of a sudden, God does something incredible, and he says, no, 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 no. Now it's, it's about them. Because in the kingdom of God, the first are last, and the last are first. Right? This kingdom that, that I'm inaugurating and inviting my kids into, be a part of, right? that, they're like the poor. It is blessed to be poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the outcast. Blessed are the outsider. Why? Because God has walked amongst them. Because God is still passionate about them. And they're usually the first to see their need for him. And he pursues them even still. Right? On Christmas, we are invited into this kingdom way. Right? Jesus is the one who calls those of us who would follow after him to follow his lead, to learn and to love as he did, as residents of the kingdom of God, as participants in the kingdom of God, as ushers and street sweepers, builders and butlers in the kingdom of God. Right? On Christmas, we remember Jesus, right? Who left, who left the riches of heaven to walk amongst the poor. Right? Who put his own righteousness on the shelf in order to come and slum it out with us. Right, who, who, you took, who had at his disposal all the advantages of the world, and he used them not for himself, but he used it to serve the disadvantaged. Right, who, who decided, you know what, to put his power on the shelf, to come and be amongst the powerless, to love the powerless, to serve the powerless. That's us, by the way. And those of us who claim his name and follow in his way, our call is still the same. Our call is still the same. To use our advantages to serve the disadvantaged, to use whatever wealth that God has entrusted into our hands to serve the poor, to use whatever power that we have, right, to love and to serve the powerless and to use whatever voice that God has given to advocate for those 
who are voiceless. And, and, and so just so you know, just, just in case you're wondering, that, that's what the church is meant to be. And, and for, if you're a guest with us, as a community of sinning saints, that is Mosaic, as Jesus' church, that is, that's what we're seeking to do in this city. Right? And so just so you know, that's part of the reason that we're, we're down here tonight. Because right now, we're in what is one of the, the poorest areas of our city. And one of the highest concentrations of, of, of refugees and families who are, are trying to make it and have traveled halfway across the world to be here. And for us as a church, we, we want to start something here. And we're getting ready to do that. Right, and so tonight, as we wrap up and close together, uh, we're going to do a couple things. Okay, so, so band, you can come on up. Um, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to end in a, a candlelight, a time of, of candlelight. And symbolically, just so you know, what we're doing is each one of those candles that you're going you're gonna to hold in your hand is symbolic of the light of the world that came to us on Christmas. Right? The Bible calls Jesus the light of the world. Right? And so we're going to sing. And we're going to hold that light. You're going to be holding that light in your hands. And you have to know that, again, that light has been given to you Partially because Jesus was sent to do something for you, but not just for you. Right? That light is something we remember, but it's something that we take with us as we walk out of here tonight. Right? It's a, it's a light that, that God has given you, not just for you, but for the world. Right? So we're going to do that. We're going we're gonna to do that. And so just, by, just uh, if you can grab your candles, by the way, uh, we're going to have some people that are going to start lighting those at this time. Um, the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to, just so you know, when you leave tonight, uh, there's a couple buckets right over there by the gate as you walk out. And we're not going to pass offering buckets in here, and it's not a traditional offering to begin with. Um, what we're going to be doing is uh, we're, we're, we're moving to plant a church community down here that's going to gather in this space. And as part of that, we're establishing something that's called the Neighborhood Fund. And, and as you can about imagine, in a, in a space like this, with an organization like the Bay, as amazing as they are, there are a lot of needs that walk through these doors uh, every single day. And so they will step in and they will help, you know, a single mom who is coming out of a, an abusive or unhealthy situation. Uh, sometimes that's to, to put up a family in a hotel room. Sometimes that's to close, uh, buy clothes or shoes for refugee families who don't have money to buy shoes or clothes. Uh, and the neighborhood fund, just so you know, that's, that's the kinds of things like all of that money is going to go to. And so all of the money that comes in tonight into those buckets are going to go into the neighborhood fund. And every penny in that fund goes to meeting the tangible needs uh, of people in this community because in the kingdom of God, people have shoes. Right? In the kingdom of God, people have food to eat. Right? In the kingdom of God, there are not abusive relationships that women are fleeing out of or families are fleeing out of or kids are caught in the middle of with nowhere to go. That does not happen in the kingdom of God. So that's part of the reason that we're planning a church here. And just so you know, that's where all that money is, is going to go. And then lastly, we're going to sing. All right, so if you would go ahead and stand. We're going to sing a Christmas carol uh, that has been around for a very long time. What? No, aren't you doing 
I thought they switched a song on me. Oh, man, I was going to put my foot in my mouth. So we're going to sing a song that has been around for a very long time. This is a Christmas classic. And if you haven't been around church very, very long, some of the language might be a little foreign to you. One of the words that we're going to sing that you've already learned tonight, if you haven't heard before, is Emmanuel, God with us. Right, the light of the world in your hands. Right, and we're going to sing that. But also the, the words of this song tell a story and reflect a lot on the story of God's people. And you have to know the story of God's people, Israel, is one of a people who constantly run and rebel against God. Right, it is a story of thieves and murderers and prostitutes, liars and, and brokenness in families and a God who pursues them over and over and over again and gives them in Christmas, gives us in Christmas, the light of the world. But not just for you, also in you and through you. All right, let's sing.